Psalm 32, a mascal of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Well, thank you again to the principal for the privilege of being with you uh, over these few days. Uh, Please keep Psalm 32 open in front of you. Many, many believers testify to the deep joy they came to experience when they first came to put their trust in Christ. It's the joy that arises from the reality of which the first two verses of this psalm speak. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. I'm guessing that you can think of times when you've been particularly conscious of the privilege of being in a right relationship with the God to whom you're accountable. With these two verses, we're at the heart of the gospel, as the Apostle Paul makes clear in quoting them in Romans 4. Every human being deserves condemnation on the day of judgment. But if we are in Christ, the punishment for our sin has been meted out on Christ, who died in our place, and his perfect life is credited to our account. Our rebellion is fully dealt with. You see how it's stressed uh, in these verses transgression, sin, iniquity, everything I shouldn't have done, everything I should have done but haven't, everything that remains in me that's repellent, the whole lot forgiven, covered, not counted against me. It is objectively utterly breathtaking and subjectively the source of our joy as Christian believers. And yet, I've noticed a pattern. So many believers would say, yes, I do recall being almost overwhelmed with joy in the past. At the start of my Christian life, you wouldn't be able to stop me talking to people around me about the wonder of the gospel that I'd come to appreciate, the marvel of being right with God, this intimate relationship with a a loving Heavenly Father, I couldn't put into words what it all meant to me. But these days, if I'm honest, that joy is not a 
a default part of my outlook from day to day. And if that's you, and it may not be, but if that's you, I have 20 something minutes in which I want to win back that joy for you for the rest of 2018 and beyond from this psalm. And I'm going to give you three watchwords. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the forgiveness of sins in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask that you'd search our hearts and minds now and work in us by your Holy Spirit such that we might experience the joy of being in a right relationship with you as we ought in order to glorify you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some of you may be thinking that this uh, joy business is all well and good when it's possible. But what drags me down, you might be saying, is that the daily grind, the, the difficult circumstances, the, the pressures of study and work, the relational tensions, the difficulties at home. But biblically speaking, difficult circumstances are not powerful enough to rob us of the joy of our salvation. No. But what can rob us of our joy is sin. How can that be? We've just reminded ourselves that sins are forgiven if our trust is in Jesus Christ. Well, you can find the answer in the life of any child that's being brought up in a stable, loving environment. That child is loved by a parent, parents, adoptive parents. The relationship is, is solid. But that doesn't mean there are no consequences for the relationship when the child is, say, supposed to be in bed by 8 p.m., but is found playing computer games at 8.30 p.m. And similarly for us, children of God, the relationship is secure. This psalm isn't about getting right with God, nor even about staying right with God. The cross has taken care of that. It is, though, about the healthy enjoyment of the relationship with God. For we continue to sin, and that isn't neutral for the relationship. Sin has consequences, sometimes in the form of a dampener being put on our experience of forgiveness, a troubled conscience, divine discipline. But the great news of this psalm is that that joy can be restored. We just need to heed three watchwords. First, candor. Candor. We need to avoid hiding our sins from God. We need to avoid hiding our sins from God. Let's read from the end of verse 2. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. We can't pin down what experience this was that David, the author, had undergone. There are experts who try to persuade us that this is post-adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, but we mustn't go beyond the text. And this is important because, as we'll see in a moment, David specifically applies the principles of this psalm to all believers. 
And these principles apply to believers who are needing to deal with sexual sin or sins of the tongue and or nurtured bitterness and or sins that are, in inverted commas, private, known only to you and God. The only criterion that applies is that we're aware of the sin in question to the extent of having a guilty conscience. And there I'm assuming that that guilty conscience is appropriate in the light of God's objective written word. And the first watchword is candor. You see how it's put at the end of verse 2. No deceit. And beginning of verse 3, having committed the sin... David tried to keep things quiet. We are so adept at persuading ourselves that we've done nothing wrong. We try to forget about it. We move on to something else. We we keep busy. We suppress. We sweep under the carpet. We we try covering up. Or we trivialize the sin. We explain it away. We look for a, a plausible excuse I'm not sleeping well at the moment. Now, it wasn't myself. It was just a freak moment. And anyway, it was, it was nothing, really. Or we call it something other than sin. The popular writer Joyce Meyer speaks of second best, limitations, shortcomings, imperfections, flaws, weakness, mistakes. But we cannot kid God. Our daughter is six and a half, but uh, but if you can wind the clock back uh, three years or so and try to picture the end of a typical day for our family life in Brussels. So uh, here uh, is Clara, age three, And uh, here is the end of her day, which uh, is uh, family Bible time uh, preceded by a little game. And the little game involves uh, Miriam uh, saying to me with a twinkle in the eye, we've lost Clara. And it is just a tiny bit obvious that the moving lump underneath the the duvet uh, equates to, to Clara, especially as we can hear her giggling. It's great fun especially for her, who perhaps thinks we can't see her just because she can't see us. But when we play this kind of game with God, it's just pathetic. And it is quite some feat of theological ignorance to imagine that God can't see our sins. Don't worry, I'm preaching to myself too. We can't run away from the one who made us, who searches hearts and minds, who knows more about our guilty consciences than we do. Sometimes we can be so stupid that we let things get to the stage of verses 3 and 4. Something that needs to be dealt with, we're not fronting up to it, and the conscience problem can even give rise to physical symptoms. I think of a student at the Belgian Bible Institute some years ago who had something major on his conscience and it had catastrophic consequences for his sleep. 
Now, I haven't said that if we sleep badly or we suffer or we're ill, it's invariably because we've sinned. Let's not go that route. See, uh, David Honey, you've got a cold at the moment. What have you done? (laughs) No, we don't go that route. But Proverbs 17, verse 22. A crushed spirit dries up the bones. David gives us a a picture here of the, the heat of summer. Think in terms of 36, 37, 38 degrees without air conditioning, energy sapped. There's nothing to be gained by hiding our sins from God. 1 John 1, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we claim we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar and his word has no place in our hearts. First watchword, candor. We need to call a spade a spade. If I've sinned, I've sinned, and it's my fault. I understand this psalm was particularly dear to the heart of Augustine, and this is what he declared. The beginning of knowledge is to know oneself to be a sinner. If we can be honest in the area of personal sin, we're on our way to recovering the joy of our salvation. For we can then confess our sin, which brings us to the second watchword, confession. Confession. We need to confess our sins straight away to God. Let's reread verses 5 to 7. I acknowledged my sin to you, And I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Or you removed the punishment of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble You surround me with shouts of deliverance. What a relief for David once he acknowledged his sin to God. The weight of his guilt is lifted. That temporal punishment is taken away. The experience of intimacy in the relationship with God is restored. He's now surrounded by shouts of deliverance. And this restored joy does not depend on circumstances. David is conscious of threats from the the rush of great waters, verse 6, from trouble, verse 7. And the shouts of deliverance are not uttered because there's nothing nothing to be delivered from, but because the great waters can't reach him. And in the face of trouble, he's found a hiding place in God. And the same goes for us in our era of redemptive history. Whatever those circumstances are that you're worried about for the rest of 2018, if you fear God, you've ultimately got nothing else to fear, and the joy of being assured of that need not leave you. Here's a question that was put to some Christians who are persecuted in Iran. 
You guys are in danger every day, but there's so much joy and laughter. Tell me why you are so joyful. One of them replies, When I was serving Allah, I was ready to give my life for Allah, who was a distant, unloving, and violent God. How much more should I be willing to give my life for Jehovah, God of the Bible, who is loving and who is so intimate? And here's the comment of a Christian writer. I think the biggest misconception in the American church is that when you come and meet with people in restricted nations, you think they're going to be really down and depressed because of all the persecution. And when you sit down with them, they are so joyful and excited, and you see it on the faces of all the people as they worship, that they are totally not depressed. No, the fundamental obstacle to experiencing the joy of sins forgiven is not liable to be difficult circumstances, but sin itself. But we confess the sin to God with an eye on the cross, and the joy returns without delay, it seems to me. Verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you... Uh, removed the punishment of my sin. This link between confession of sin and experience of forgiveness is direct. And David is concerned that other believers should understand this principle. Verse 6, Therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. At a time when you may be found. In other words, do it soon. Don't delay. Second watchword, confession, but by that we mean immediate confession. I think of a time when I had to take someone to task in the context of my work at the Belgian Bible Institute. It was somebody mature and godly, and I appreciate that maturity and that godliness all the more that the guy in question didn't hesitate to acknowledge his sin, even though the consequences of dealing with that sin were going to be quite major for him. Rapid confession is always the best policy. Proverbs 28, verse 13. He who conceals his sins does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Now, I don't want to be simplistic. I know it's true that sometimes the confession to God will presuppose having that difficult conversation on the horizontal level as well with that individual human we've sinned against and or will involve a church grouping needing to be informed. I can't cover all the New Testament texts that could be relevant to particular scenarios. The take-home point of this psalm is that we need to name our sins before God. What might it look like in practice to take this psalm Seriously. This is how one American pastor has put it. When I lump all my sins together and confess them en masse, I neglect to feel the pain or embarrassment or shame that should be elicited in me. But if I take those sins out of the pile one by one and call them each by name, it's a whole new ball game. I determined a long time ago, he explains, that in my prayers I would deal with sin specifically. I would say, 
I told so-and-so that we had 900 people at that event, but I know there weren't more than 500 there. That was a lie, and therefore I am a liar. I plead with your forgiveness for being a liar. Or instead of admitting that I had been less than the best husband, I would say, today, I willfully determined to be self-centered, uncaring, and insensitive. It was a calculated decision. I walked through the door thinking, I'm not going to serve her tonight. I've had a hard day, and I deserve to have things my way. I need your forgiveness for the sin of selfishness. He goes on. On about the fifth day in a row that you have to call yourself a liar, a greedy person, a manipulator, or whatever term may be true for you, you say to yourself, I'm tired of admitting that. With God's power, I've got to root it out of my life. Here's an example of what this psalm means for me, and I could illustrate ad nauseam, because I go through these hoops again and again and again. But here's a a striking example. Uh, I receive an email that I understand to be mildly critical of the Belgian Bible Institute and favorable towards other training institutions in French-speaking Europe. Some combination of pride, jealousy, anger, self-pity wells up in me, and I nurture it. But by the grace of God, I believe this psalm. And it's usually not too long before the next time I preach on it, which is a help because preachers don't like getting up uh, if they're not actually living what they're preaching, as you well know. So I deal with it before the Lord. And what a relief. Now, if you have a particularly sensitive conscience, you may need to be alerted to what this psalm doesn't say. This psalm doesn't say, if you want to know the joy of your salvation... You'll need to identify and name and confess everything you commit every day, every hour of every day, scrutinizing every nook and cranny of your mind, going back over every word uttered or not uttered, analyzing everything carefully, and then analyzing the analysis to detect the elements of sin in the analysis. This type of introspection is not on the agenda in this psalm. Fifteen or twenty years ago, I was part of a community in another country, and a a young woman confessed in front of us all to committing a sexual sin. I can't remember all the details of what she said, but I do remember this, and it may sound weird. The testimony of this young woman was, of course, shocking. But at the same time, there was a healthy tone to it perhaps even joyful. Why? Because, she explained, the fact of confessing had brought her peace. It was as if if she was speaking along the lines of verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you removed the punishment of my sin. That young woman wasn't downplaying the seriousness of her sin, nor its very considerable consequences. 
but she knew she was forgiven. And in a sense, that was what was uppermost. Second watchword for a joyful Christian life, confession. 1 John again, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the propitiation for our sins. Our forgiveness is taken care of at the cross. Isn't this marvelous? And the door remains open for us to live out that marvel if we will but confess our sins to God. But, as we all know, far better than confessing our sins is not committing them in the first place. Which leads us to the final watchword. Compliance. Compliance. We need to allow ourselves to be led by God. We need to allow ourselves to be led by God. Verses 8 to 10. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. We listen to God's instruction, verse 8, and we comply, verse 9. We're not to harden our hearts when we hear God's voice in the scriptures. We're not, not to be like the stubborn mule, not like the horse that needs to be curbed with bit and bridle. I don't know everybody here. There may be some in the room who are not owners of horses and stables. Here's a suitable image for you. It's taken from the Brussels Metro, but translated any train you can think of. Um, The other day, I saw a little boy who simply refused to budge when his mother wanted to get him out at the right station. It was quite an impressive performance he put up in resisting. Um, uh, And it was tough on the mum who ended up having to Uh, take this little boy in her arms and then he just made it in time. May God grant us humility before his word, submission to it, compliance. May we allow ourselves to be instructed by God, taught by God, counseled by God. Now I'm more than aware that being submissive to God can sometimes feel scary, be costly, be filled with imponderables, But this psalm should make us more scared of the dangers of being obdurate. We've seen from verses 3 and 4 already that we should be scared of having that heavy hand of God upon us, of being deprived of the experience of the joy that comes from the forgiveness of our sins. You may know Philip Doddridge's hymn, O Happy Day. That happy day, you may recall, is when... Jesus washed my sins away. But he goes on. He taught me how to watch and pray and live rejoicing every day. We guard against sin to preserve and promote joy. 
And this final part of the psalm is so precious because when we're honest, it can be depressing what muck there is in our hearts. And we can start to wonder if we're making any progress at all in the Christian life. And we might even start questioning whether we can even carry on in the Christian life. But look at the end of verse 8. This is God speaking. I will cancel you with my eye upon you. You know what it means to keep an eye on a, on a toddler who's just learned to walk. It can be quite difficult for us to have this conversation over here and be trying to keep an eye on the toddler over there. Uh, but God succeeds with us, quite capable of keeping his eye on us. Oh, sure, being candid about our sins and confessing them isn't fun. And resolving to be compliant isn't easy. But God knows what we're going through, and he's not going to take his eye off us. There's no question of God abandoning us. And the very fact that he disciplines us in the first place is proof of that. We read a number of times in the scriptures that the Lord disciplines those he loves. End of verse 10. God remains steadfast in his loving covenant commitment towards us in Christ. You think God's going to abandon you? No, my dear brother or sister. It's just not in the character of the God you worship. Candor, confession, compliance. And there's a virtuous circle here that we need to foster in our lives. We get into the habit of being candid with God. That leads to confession, which leads more readily to compliance with God's will the next time in that particular area where we've sinned. Candor, confession, compliance. We heed those three watchwords. And what's the bottom line? Why? A song in our heart. Verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart.